success to follow me. I thought it might be in a plan to sail across the sea, but I didn't find what I really need. I found it all when I lost everything and gave my life to serve a risen king. I found the truth that I for I found it all when I found the Lord. I'm letting go of all my ways that I think are best for me. I'm laying down all my ideas of what I think my life should be. I'm giving everything I am right at Jesus' feet. For it's here I find everything I need. I found it all when I lost everything and gave my life to serve a risen king. I found the truth that I'd been searching for. I found it all when I found I found it all and I lost everything. You know, the, the danger in the, the, uh, the world we live in is that somehow we get the idea at times that the world has so much to offer and we don't want to miss out. The truth is, is that you got to lose it all before you can gain it. And the fact is, is that some young people, and again, I say some because not all, but a lot of times young people and sadly even older folks nowadays find themselves crawling into the world. It's just a cesspool of sin, and they somehow think that that's satisfying. It's really kind of disturbing, isn't it? And yet, we are all prone to that. The idea that somehow we are all, that we are somehow, uh, you know, immune to the world and its, its draw, it's, it's, that's, that's not really true either. We have to be on guard all the time. And I just, um, I don't know, I, I'm glad you're here tonight, but I can tell you this, there'll be folks that are here tonight that won't be here next year at this time. That's just a reality of life. I mean, that happens sometimes, and sadly enough, it won't be because you left the church mad at us. You'll leave the church because you love the world. And listen, I'm going to tell you something. You will be better off to quit feeling for a while and just obey the word. Stop feeling things. Just be obedient. And then you'll still be here, and you'll be perfectly fine. And about five years from now, you'll look back and go, you know, when I was going through that tough time and I started thinking crazy thoughts, 
I'm glad I didn't do something crazy. Because you start letting those emotions rule your life, you won't be here next year. Or you won't be here in five years. You can't let that happen. It's going to happen if you let those emotions rule you. And the world is good because the world wants us to run on emotion today. And, and you say, well, what's this have to do with what we're talking about? Well, I didn't intend to even kind of dovetail into it, but honestly, many times it's our feelings that cause us to question our salvation even. It's not the fact of salvation. It's not the, 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 the clarity of the word of God that we even doubt at times. It's our own selves. We doubt ourselves or we doubt how we feel. And we have to be careful with that because that'll put doubts in your mind. It'll sow seeds of discord. You just have to be very careful. Now, our text verse for the series has been Jonah 2.9. We've been talking about this. It says, but I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I'll pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And so we've been addressing this issue of everlasting life. It's very important. It's very important. I'm sorry, I, I can't get off it. I'm telling you, the world will destroy you. <laughs> It'll eat you up and spit you out. Uh, I'm going to, I don't know. I was writing some notes up here because I, I started thinking about some other things. I was thinking of a message already on the way into church, so I wrote some things down before church, and then I got up here and I had another thought, and I thought, man, I don't want to forget that, so I wrote it down. And so I'm thinking about preaching this message that I've got on my mind, so I don't want to preach it now, okay? But uh, we'll, we'll see where it goes. But uh, you pray for me for Sunday. Uh, we want something that's going to make a difference in lives. But honestly, it, it, the Lord has to make a difference in our lives. Every day, he's got to make a difference. And uh, don't, don't think for a moment we can slip. You know, it's kind of like taking those antibiotics, you know, that Z-Pak. You, uh, you take that Z-Pak, they say, now listen, don't miss one of those, you know. It'll set you back. And it does. You got to take them every day. And, and they don't last long, but you got to take them every day. For the, have the, to have the full effect. Christianity is the same way. You start missing a day here and there, it starts to be accumulative almost. And pretty soon, you know, if you're not careful, your heart begins to wax cold. Now, notice uh, again, it says salvation is of the Lord. Now, of course, we did our demonstration a few times. I'm not going to waste time there. And we talked about the fact that, you know, if you could lose your salvation, that would mean that you never really had everlasting life at all. I mean, you can't lose everlasting life, or it was never everlasting. And so we, we kind of touched on that. We also talked about the fact that we need to examine ourselves. How important is examining ourselves? And we said the, the, you know, the, the real test, the acid-proof test of, of our Christianity is whether Christ is in us or not. If Christ is in us, then we are Christians, and we are saved, and we are secure without a doubt. And the moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us that Jesus in the person of the Holy Spirit, moves into us. He literally takes up residency in our life. That's good news. And if Christ be in you, then you're in Christ. You're good to go. You're safe in the, the arms of the Lord Jesus. We learned that we can do nothing to lose our salvation already. We talked about that. We addressed it. No man can lose his salvation on his own. Because no one's ever earned their own salvation. If you have to do anything to earn or keep your salvation, you, you'd obviously, you and I would lose it easily. We address that. 
Now, there was one other area that we were going to address that we never got to, and I think I'm going to save that because I want to get into the new material. But we were going to talk just a little bit about this idea that if we became righteous by by anything we did, if we could somehow become righteous in our own efforts or our own works or deeds, then Jesus Christ's death was in vain. We'll save that for later. Maybe we'll throw it in somewhere else. But today I want to start with another question. And it kind of dovetails or is piggybacks on all the other questions we've been asking. The question, God won't cast me out. No man can cause me to lose my salvation. And I can't lose it myself. But is there anything else that can cause me to lose my salvation? And the answer, the resounding answer is no. Capital N, capital O, explanation point, explanation point, explanation point. No, 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 no. Turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39. There are so many uncertainties in the world we live in. You know, honestly, I mean, every day, you know, I, I appreciated uh, Brother Folger today at the funeral talking about some of the uncertainties of our day and, and how within hours things can change completely, you know? And I thought, wow, that is so true. It absolutely is true. And yet we can have some things that are certain. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the fact is, is that his word never changes. And his promises are always true. And they are secure. And so our salvation needn't be considered a, 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 a something that could fade or, or go away. No, it is secure. It's safe. It, it is, you don't ever have to question whether or not salvation is forever because the Bible is very clear that it is. Now, notice what it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now... Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Well, you know what? Sorry, reading the wrong portion yet. I'm jumping ahead because I moved my uh, note page and I didn't finish reading the verse that I just sent you to. So let's read the verse I sent you to first. That might be a good thing. Romans 8, verse 38 and 39. Paul the Apostle writing, of course, to the church at Rome, he says, For I am persuaded. Don't you like to be persuaded? You know what I mean? Don't you like to be confident? Man, the Apostle Paul says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that's, that's, now there's, that's, I'm telling you what, being persuaded of that's really important, Right? Well, let's turn over to the book of Romans again now, but all the way back to chapter 1. I mean, how did Paul arrive at chapter 8, verse 38 and 39? How did he get there? How did he get so, how is he so persuaded? Now, again, we could take the time to literally go through the entire book of Romans up to chapter 8. 
And we could note the justification and the sanctification and the glorification. We could note all of those things. I understand that and I get that. But let's go back to Romans just chapter 8 verse 1. Let's just go back one chapter to the beginning of the one that he's in already. And let's begin there. And let's try to kind of wrap our mind around how it is that the apostle is so confident. Notice what it says in Romans 8, 1. There, there is, therefore, now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. There is, therefore, now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Again, he's dealing in the present. He's saying there is, therefore, now no condemnation. Now, that's a wonderful thing. That word condemnation is used in a few other places in Scripture as well. Turn, if you would, to John chapter 3, verse 16 through 21 as well. John chapter 3, verse 16 through 21. In Romans 8, 1, the apostle Paul makes it very clear that for those that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit, that, that are led by the Spirit. Why? Because they are indwelt by the Spirit. Notice what he says here. He says there is now no condemnation. But notice what it says in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, this is where it really gets good. Notice he says, he that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. Why? Because, he says, he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now again, we see that. He continues by saying this. He says, and this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be manifest, that they are wrought in God. Now again, we see that he sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. Why is that the case? Because the Bible says here that if we don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are already condemned. See, the world is already condemned because of inerrant, inherent sin. Because of the sin of Adam. We're already under condemnation. There's already a death sentence that we have already acquired and possess already. We are condemned by God because of sin already. And so the Bible tells us that he sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. Why? Because we're already condemned. But that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. Now turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. If you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says that you are no longer condemned then. See, you begin condemned. You are on death row. But what we're going to find is that if you believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are no longer condemned. As a matter of fact, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, 
through 10, we're going to find the same word condemnation. We're not going to find the word condemnation or condemned, but we are going to find the same theme being emphasized. Notice what's emphasized. For they themselves, verse 9, shew of us what manner of entering in we had unto you and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Notice again that this Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ, he was raised from the dead. We wait for him to return from heaven. Why? He delivered us from the wrath to come. You know what he delivered us from? The condemnation. The condemnation that is associated with sin and is demanded because of sin and as a result of sin. So the wrath to come, then we could say, is the condemnation again. And he's telling us that saints clearly escape the condemnation that sin brings. Now, in Romans chapter 8, verse 1 again, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation of them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now, Paul is not basing his assertion here, this assertion of no condemnation, based upon the saints' conduct. He's not looking at our conduct and saying, you know what? You no longer are condemned because of your actions. You're no longer condemned because of your lifestyle. You're no longer condemned because of your conduct, being so holy and righteous and so separated from the world. That's not what his, his, his intention was, and it's certainly not his, his uh, assertion. What he is stating is simply this, that it is your position in Christ that makes you no longer condemned. It's not your conduct, but your position, your place in Jesus Christ. Now that's important because although we say it a number of times, we say it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should, any man should boast. But what I guess we're reiterating and what we're really enforcing here is that that death sentence, that condemnation, is not going to be eradicated as a result of our conduct. It is simply going to go away only in our position in Christ. Where do you stand with Jesus Christ? Not what do you do for Jesus Christ. Where do you stand in relationship to him? Are you in a relationship with him specifically? Has he forgiven you, saved you, and literally indwelt you? Your position in Christ. So important because that's why the condemnation goes away. Again, that position was secured through the new birth. And that new birth is described over there in the book of John chapter 3 verse 7. When the Bible says, marvel not that I say unto thee, ye must be born again. We were born into condemnation. We are reborn no condemnation. You deserved hell and separation from God forever in a place called the lake of fire, and so did I. Because of our sin, the Adamic sin, that sin nature, that evil nature. But now we are no longer under condemnation. Why? Because of the new birth, our position and our place in Jesus Christ. It's liberated us. It liberated us from the power of that sin nature. 
It made us partakers of what is often referred to and spoken of as the divine nature. And this new, I guess, internal condition, it produces a life in every single one that names the name of Christ, which changes its motive. Now we want obedience to the commands, where once we wanted nothing to do necessarily with them, where we found it difficult to follow, we at least desire now to please the master. There should be something in us that says the word of God is what I need. Now, I know we can get cold. I know we can get backslidden. I understand all that. But if you have Christ in you, then there ought to be a change internally. There's something different now. It's what God has made the believer that ensures the fact that there's no cause for condemnation in them. It's all a work of Jesus Christ. He did it all. He paid it all. He met every need. See, sin demands payment, and death was required. In our case, Jesus became our substitute. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the Bible says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Again, the substitutionary death, of Jesus Christ. He bore the condemnation of sin that you and I should have borne. He paid the price and willingly laid down his life. You and I deserve to die, that's condemnation, to be separated forever from the Lord Jesus Christ, the condemnation that comes through that sinful nature. Jesus Christ came, took on that sin, sin and he turned around and bore it in his own body on the tree. And the Bible says, that he, was made, that, that he hath made him to be sin for us. He literally became sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We swapped places. We received his righteousness as he bore our sin. Or should I say it really was he bore our sin, so we therefore received his righteousness. Possess it now. Now that's pretty, pretty important stuff. He died in our stead. Now, because of the death of Christ, and by doing so, he atoned for our sin. Sin's claim and sin's authority over us came to an end. Now, I want you to look at Romans chapter 8, verse 3 very quickly. I just want to kind of have a little sidebar here, or, and just kind of, I, I think it's interesting what we uncover just very quickly Notice that here in the passage in chapter 8, verse 3, we're going to note the phrase likeness of sinful flesh. In eight, chapter 8, verse 3, the Bible says, For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Now, I just, I just think this is kind of interesting because when you look at this and you say to yourself, now what's he mean, likeness of sinful flesh? Well, if he would have said he came in flesh, then that would have implied that Christ, I guess um, there would have been a correlation between his, his manhood or humanness and sin. That wouldn't have worked too well. He came in the flesh, and we know that no good thing dwelleth in the flesh. 
It doesn't say that he came in the flesh of sin. Now that would have meant virtually that he partook of sin then. It doesn't say that though. And it doesn't say that he came in the likeness of flesh. Because we understand that he didn't just come in the likeness of flesh. He was truly and unquestionably human in that regard. He was all man. Oh, I know he was all God, but he was all man. He understands, our, he understands the temptation we face. He understands the feeling of hunger. He knows all of the hurts and heartaches that we can experience. Why? Because of his humanity. But instead it says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Or in the likeness of the sin of the flesh. Or flesh of sin. Now what he's really saying is this. He is really human. And he was conformed to the appearance of this particular flesh. And the characteristic of this flesh is that of sin. But he was sinless. So he looked exactly like you and I in that sense. You would never have noticed the difference as far as just, I go up, I shake his hand, it's just like anyone else's hand. He had temptation like you had temptation. He understand what it was to address and deal with hurt and heartache. But yet the Bible makes it clear that he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He appeared to be all man, which he was and is, or at least while on earth. And the fact is, though, he never sinned. He was sinless. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And Jesus Christ became our substitute. He was able and he was the only one that God, the only sacrifice God would accept. And he, he, he paid the price for our sin sparing us the condemnation. Romans chapter 8. Turn to verse 31 now. So we go back to chapter 8, verse 1. We already have done that. And we began to see that the Apostle Paul understands this aspect of condemnation, that we're born into sin, which means we're already condemned, but because of the substitutionary death of Christ, because of the continual intercession of the Lord Jesus, we're no longer under condemnation as a result of being in Christ. Our position has changed. We're no longer under condemnation because we believe in the Lord Jesus. And so he goes on to say now in chapter 8, verse 31, he says, What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? I want you to understand, again, we're trying to just kind of scratch the surface on the context of this. You have to remember when you start dealing with your salvation that you got, you got to remember that he's all for you. If God be for us, who can be against us? We like to kind of take that passage and simply mean, well, you know what, if I'm out in the world and people are opposing me, I can stand up strong and I can, you know, roar like a lion and all that stuff and if God's for me, then who can be against me? And I'm telling you that in its context, it's really addressing and dealing with this element of condemnation and the fact that you aren't going to be left out in the cold at all. I'm telling you, if you're one of his, you are one of his. What shall we say then? What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not 
with him also freely give us all things. See, the idea that God is in heaven always looking for ways to make our lives miserable or to somehow bring the hammer down, that is not reality at all. That's not what the Bible's teaching about God. You know, it wasn't that long ago, about a week ago or so, Sherry and I were kind of standing around talking in the kitchen and there was this fly flying around. I mean, it was going crazy and it was moving fast. It wasn't one of those big ones that had kind of, kind of just lumbered about and just had been sticking around for a week or two and, or a few days and you're just like, wow, that thing is slow and big. I don't want to get hit by it, but, you know, it's like an Airbus or something, you know? But no, this was one of those like, you know, uh, I mean, a jet, little jet, you know. So what I did was is, is uh, I got that, that fly swatter out and I started trying to watch for that thing. You know, it's hard to see them, you know. I mean, they're flying fast, right? And so I'm getting that fly swatter, and I'm just like this. I mean, I'm poised, you know. I'm prepared. I'm ready. And, and, and I'm kind of like, okay, all right. I'm trying to hit him right now. He wouldn't land. So I'm just trying to nail him, you know. I mean, I'm watching for him because I'm ready just to pounce on this dude. And he, he flies by. Nothing. And finally, I mean, I felt like Mr. Miyagi on Karate Kid. I was like, down he came. I mean, he, there he was. I mean, he just out like a light. You know, God doesn't have, God has his eye keenly on you and I. But not for bad, but for good. I mean, he's not over there trying to nail us. He's over there trying to look for ways that he can bless us. He is for us, not against us. I mean, that's what he's saying here. And then he goes on, like we said already in verse 32, and he says, he that spared not his own son. I mean, that's what he did for you and I. He, he didn't even spare his own son. Matter of fact, the Bible says, and we were going to touch on it earlier, but we didn't, remember? I, I mean, we could go back to Isaiah, and we could see that it pleased him to bruise him. God was pleased to do that. Why? That's crazy. No, it's not. Because he recognized if it wasn't for the fact of Jesus Christ going to Calvary and paying for the sin, then you and I would have to pay our own sin. He didn't die in vain. I guarantee you that. Because there's no way that you or I could ever measure up to God's standard. And so we had to have a substitute, Jesus Christ. And the Bible's telling us, and Paul the Apostle, he's talking about condemnation and about no longer being in condemnation because of his position in Jesus Christ and for, for the fact that Jesus Christ was his substitute and is making intercession on him consistently and continually. And the fact is that's true in all of our lives if we know Christ. And he says, he delivered him up for all, us all. How shall, he not, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? I mean, the thought that Jesus Christ, that God would allow his son, Jesus, to die on a cross, to pay for our sin, become our substitute, and then look for ways to keep us out of heaven. That doesn't even make sense to me. He's not there to hurt us or harm us. It's not his goal to somehow cast us off. No, not at all. 
He allowed all of that to happen and it pleased him to do it because he wants good for you and me. If he had sought to send us to hell, he could have simply not offered up his son. But that wasn't his intention at all. The idea that I'm going to come to Christ and I'm genuinely concerned about my sin and the need for Jesus in my life, I cry out to him and I call upon him and I I confess my sin and I, I repent of it and I turn to Jesus and then God goes, I'm watching you. I'm watching you. Go ahead and mess up. Go ahead and make a mistake. Go ahead and be led by the flesh in a weak moment. Go ahead, and I'll cast you off forever. That's not even consistent with his character. And it goes contrary to what his whole purpose was. He goes on in verse 33. So we saw the Lord here in verse 31 and 32. But notice the logic in verse 33 and 34. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. He says, first of all, it's God that justifies or makes us just as if we never sinned. That's who does that for us. It's, it's not, again, any any play that we made. It's not anything that we attempted to do. It's all God. He's the one that justifies. And Paul asks an extremely, I think a very intriguing question in verse 34. Who is he that condemneth? Who is he that condemneth? Now, again, remember, we think to ourselves, well, certainly God is. Whoa, 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 hold on. He answers the question here. Notice verse 34, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Paul's argument is simply this, who is he that condemns? Christ died, and that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us? I mean, seriously, Christ is the one that died for us, he says. Who condemns us? Can Christ, who is always making intercession on our behalf, also at the same time condemn us? It's not going to happen. Jesus Christ never did seek to condemn. As a matter of fact, the only thing he does in this passage is it tells us that he died for us, He rose again for us. He's at the right hand of God making intercession for us. And so in the meantime, let me tell you, he's not condemning us. You don't do all of that to condemn. And Paul the Apostle is trying to help us understand that. Even Jesus, in a sense, can't do both. He's doing one or the other. He's either making intercession or he's condemning. I think that's pretty important. Because that means then if you've received Christ as your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ is not in heaven waiting to pounce on you again, but instead he's seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession on your behalf consistently and continually. He has no desire 
no inkling at all to condemn. None. Then we note the love in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake are we killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. What great power this love of Christ is. Tremendous power, isn't it? What he's saying here in the passage is it is more powerful than all the attacks of both Satan and man upon the saint. I mean, tribulation, distress, persecution or famine, nakedness, peril or sword, none of those things can separate you from the love of God. None of them can. What great love that is. And then finally, we note the list here in verse 37. The Apostle Paul finally ends up now where we began. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. We're more than conquerors. Notice it's through him again. Everything always goes back to Jesus Christ. It always goes back to our substitute. It always goes back to the one who paid the penalty of sin on our behalf. Through him. Not ourselves, through him. And then he goes on to list some things he is quite confident cannot separate us from God and his love. Again, remember, he goes on to say, for I am persuaded then. Why are you so persuaded? Well, because I'm an heir of the new birth. My position or standing in Christ is secure. Because of the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ and the fact that he continually makes intercession on my behalf and that I'm no longer condemned, I can tell you today, the Apostle Paul says, for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angel, nor principality, nor power, nor present, things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can't lose your salvation when you die. You don't lose your salvation while you're living. Neither death nor life. You don't lose your salvation you know, uh, even angels can't take it from you. I mean, principalities, the government, or satanic forces can't take it from you. Those powers and principalities and powers it talks about, again, once again, that really focusing the powers on satanic influence and the demonic influence and so forth, that, that spiritual warfare, you can't lose it through that. Things present. Nothing happening right now can take it away from you. Things to come, nothing in the future. You needn't worry. Nothing in the future can make you lose it. But you don't know what I'm going to do. You know what? I know what he already did. Now listen, if you're not a child of God, if you don't have Christ in you, then yeah, you ought to be concerned. But it doesn't matter what you do. You won't lose something you never had. You'd have to have it to lose it, and if you have it, you can't lose it. You say, well, I'm starting to be nervous about whether I really have it. Then that's a whole other issue. 
And that's something you better nail down. And my advice to you is simply this, if that's you. You go to God and you say to the Lord, Lord, honestly, I believe I'm saved. I'm pretty confident I trusted and received you the way the Bible says. But Lord, if there's a problem here, and if I don't have it settled 100%, if I'm truly not your child, then you tell me to get saved. Don't, don't ask him to give you confidence. Ask him, you tell me to get saved if I'm not saved. If I'm saved, then Lord, I'm just going to keep trusting your word. I know I did what the Bible said. I just questioned my own, my own, I questioned my own uh, resolve at times. I wonder if I even really meant it, even though I know I've been in church. I know I've, I've, I've read my Bible when I didn't and all. I still struggle sometimes because I'm not always what I ought to be. Don't, listen, just go to God and say, you know what? Until you tell me to get saved, I'm going to keep following your word and obeying your word, and I'm just going to trust the word of God. And someone says, yeah, well, what if you're not saved? You die. I don't believe you'll ever die if you're truly seeking him without Jesus Christ. You will find him. He will tell you, I promise you that, if you need to be saved and you're asking, Lord, if I'm not saved, tell me to get saved, Lord. And he's going, I sent my son to die for you, but I'm not going to tell you that. That don't even make sense. I allowed him to suffer, bleed, and die for you, and you're asking me whether you need him in your life as Savior, Lord? Forget it. I'm going to let you suffer. He would never do that, would he? That's inconsistent. He says, they that seek me early shall find me. Do I believe there are folks that believe they're saved that need to settle it? Yeah. I know, I was one of them. So I understand that. I didn't go around lying to people. I didn't go around deceiving people. I never sought to say, well, you know, I know I'm not saved. I'm just going to pretend to be. <laughs> never did that. But every once in a while, man, there was just this something inside. I just couldn't shake it. I can't even explain it. It wasn't every week. It wasn't every month. Sometimes it was a half year. Sometimes a year between. Something just wasn't... I, Let me tell you what, the devil will never tell you to get saved. He may tell you you are lost, but he will never tell you to get saved. So if you have a question about your salvation, you go to God and say, Lord, I know the devil wouldn't tell me to get saved, so if somebody, you, tell me to get saved, and I know in my heart it's you speaking, I'm just going to obey you no matter what anyone thinks. I'll get it settled. Someone says, well, you're putting doubts in people's mind. No, I'm telling you, that ever since I made that decision as an adult, I have never doubted. And I don't want you to doubt, and God doesn't want you to doubt. So, nail it down. I've had folks I've talked to like this, and they've come back to me later and said, you know what, preacher? I don't even worry about now. I know I'm saved. I told the Lord, you tell me. And you know what? He gave me a peace. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. That's wonderful. But man, if God tells you to get saved, you better just obey him. Don't try to talk him out of it. Or you'll be the one that regrets it, not just in eternity, but while you're living, you'll regret it. Because if you literally have a tenderness for God and the things of God, and you can have that without being saved, by the way. 
There are people that love spiritual things. They're more spiritually built, so to speak. They just seem like they just gravitate to spiritual things. Why do you think all these religions in the world thrive? Because we're spiritual beings. There's something missing. We want to fill the void. So if there's any void and you doubt things, well, go to God and just tell him that. Be honest with him. But the Bible tells us, and the Apostle Paul clearly ends chapter 8 after going all the way through chapter 8 and and stating truths. He finally comes to the end of chapter 8 and says, for I am persuaded. I'm persuaded. After everything I've now learned and know about the Lord Jesus, man, he saved me and I don't ever have to worry about him tossing me aside. No way. No way. I'm his today. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for just the privilege that we've had to gather today and Lord, I thank you, Father, for your people, and I pray, Lord, you just bless us now and encourage us in the word. We thank you for just the, 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 the simplicity of it and yet the power of it all, how simply it impacts our lives, it influences us. Lord, I'm so glad for a people at Community Baptist who have faithfully attended and faithfully served and continue to, Father, give just their time, their effort, their finances for the work of God. Lord, we've gathered here tonight because we want to glean from your word and we want to grow. We want to be more confident than ever in our relationship and in our standing with you. Father, please, as we learn more about you and just what you, the price you paid, as well as what you're doing even presently by interceding on our behalf, we just pray that our confidence in our salvation, our eternal life would ever grow. May we not be able to be shaken. May the devil not be even able to get a foothold at all in our lives. Be glorified now, Lord. Be exalted in this place. And if there be any that are without Jesus that don't have Christ in them, may you just help them to be saved, show them their need of Christ. And if there's someone that says, you know what, I know I need to get saved. I can't explain it, but I just know I need to settle it, and I don't want to take any chances the Holy Spirit speaking, and I'm going to obey because I know the devil would never tell me to get saved. This must be Jesus speaking. Father, I'll thank you and I'll praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand to our feet. Every head bowed, every eye closed.